genealogy. How does Mark begin? Okay, it gets right to the story. You know, how does John begin? In the beginning was the Word. Yeah, kind of a theological prologue, if you want to call it that. A very deep, you know, God-centered uh, background. Now, Luke begins with more of a historical or literary prologue. Uh, so let's read this and talk about it a little bit. Uh, somebody want to read chapter 1, 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So this sounds very heavy, doesn't it? It sounds very literary, and it was. This would be a typical prologue for serious uh, writing in the first century. Here's an example. This is from Dioscorides, uh, which was a physician from the first century. And here's how he started his book. Although many reports have been made, not only in the past, but also recently, about the production, effects, and testing of medicines, I nevertheless intend to instruct you, dear Arios, about them. The decision to undertake such a thing is neither needless nor injudicious, for some of my predecessors have not completed their works, and others have written most things down from hearsay. So it's kind of an explanation of what he's writing, kind of defense of what he's writing, kind of puts it in the context. That's similar. Now, obviously, there's some differences, but it's a similar style of thing. So this was not unheard of to write something like this to start something that you're writing. Um, so he begins this by talking about um, other accounts. There are many who've undertaken to write something like this. And what are the sources of these accounts? What's been handed down. Right, what's been handed down from who? Eyewitnesses, servants of the world. Alright, so you've got eyewitnesses that were also servants of the word, men sent out to preach it. And they have informed the writing of these other writings that have told about this. So Luke is putting this in the context of what's already been done. Verses 1 and 2 are other writings that people have taken to talk about the things that have been accomplished among us. And these accounts have come from eyewitnesses. Now Luke decides to do this as well. So he moves to his contribution in verses 3 and 4. He doesn't necessarily downgrade his predecessors who blazed the trail. Uh, but he's, he's just kind of saying, you know, I chose to do this as well. Now, there's some things about how Luke did this that recommend his work. What are some things he says that show that he's, you know, this is going to be a, 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 a positive contribution? He's investigated it. All right. So, he's done extensive and careful research. He's tracked things down. He's followed them up step by step from the source. That's something you're going to have to do. You know, if you're going to do a good job, this has kind of been a serious research project for him. And so, he has investigated everything carefully from the beginning. Now, you know what Luke's uh, professional background was, right? 
doctor. What would you say doctors need to excel in? Maybe several things. Handwriting. <laughs> that would be nice. <clears throat> what do doctors need to be able to do well? Let's say a doctor has a new patient. What's he going to have to do? Yeah, he's going to have to observe well. He's going to have to note the details and understand them in their context. I think Luke applies some of that doctor's gift for observation to this research that he's done. Kind of like an investigative reporter. He's, he's gone through all the evidence that's relevant. So he's investigated everything carefully from the beginning. Um, so it, it's, been, it's been very thought out. It's been very careful. What else is he doing in this? He doesn't talk just about how careful he's investigated it. It's in consecutive order. All right. He's written it down in a logical, organized sequence. You know, you could analyze, you could, you could research, but, but you know, that's just one step. Have you ever seen people write things that were just really disjointed? You know, people tend to do that because it's like you kind of splice together bits and pieces of information you got here, there, and yonder, and you just kind of throw it all in there. <laughs> but you don't necessarily analyze it and organize it and present it in a logical fashion. And so it's not very useful a lot of times. It doesn't, doesn't flow. Luke does. He didn't just investigate. He planned it out and organized it well. Now when he says consecutive order here, I don't think that means that everything's written in chronological order. I think it means logical order. <laughs> so I, I, I'm not, I don't think we're bound to say that everything has to occur precisely in chronological order. You ever known anybody write a history that everything was in chronological order? It would be really disjointed. You know, because things are happening in more than one place at the same time, and so if you had it strict chronology, it'd just be confusing. But it's a logical sequence that makes sense. Now, who is Luke writing this to? Theophilus. Theophilus. We don't know a lot about Theophilus, but this is not the only passage his name is mentioned, right? Where else is he mentioned? Acts 1, where Luke also dedicates part 2 to Theophilus. The name means lover of God. And we're assuming he's a man that Luke was writing this to. Possibly he sponsored the writing financially. That would be a typical custom in their day to dedicate it to the patron who sponsored it, but we don't know that for sure here. What's the purpose of telling Theophilus all this, writing this for him? Even know the exact truth. Yeah. Things that he's heard. So he can, can, you know, because Lucas researched it and he's been careful in in analyzing it and so forth, then he'll be able to know what's really true about this. So overall, I think Luke has justified writing this on the basis of earlier similar writings, on the basis of trustworthy eyewitness sources, the basis of his own careful research to be able to add his contribution. Now, there are some things that I think this prologue or preface leads us to think about. One is the nature of inspiration. Would you have expected an inspired writer to do research and track down sources and, you know... That kind of even to organize his writing. How would you have expected an inspired inspired writer to write? 
in his sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he would sit down and he'd put the quill in his hand and then he'd just like... Yeah, or at, yeah, exactly. At least whatever God told him, okay, now write this, now write this, now write this, now write this. I think that's kind of how we imagine that. And yet, it, obviously, that's not the case. I mean, think about the things Paul wrote. Did Paul write some personal things? Do we assume that he didn't mean those personal things, that it was just God saying, now write that you love them? <laughs> you know, and things like that. You know, so we understand when Paul wrote, he's writing from his heart. So Luke's writing from his research. So is this then not inspired? Is Paul not inspired? It almost makes you stop and think about that. And it may mean he's not inspired in the way we thought inspiration worked. So what does inspiration mean in this case? In what sense did God inspire the writing of Luke? Certainly in making Luke want to write this account for the benefit of others. Okay. A different sense of inspire, perhaps. Yeah, but that wouldn't mean... Luke could have made any kind of mistakes he wanted if he wasn't very good at the research or whatever. So that would leave it awfully human and not very divine. I mean, it says that you know everything is inspired by God, but it's the definition of that that we're trying to define. That's exactly right. So what so, is that? Yeah, so I mean, you can look at that in several ways, but just the fact that they... Maybe the way we use the term in other ways, he was, they were inspired by God to write things. <laughs> right. Yeah, it really inspired me to do it. You know, it's like motivated or whatever. Right. So in some sense, that way. But I think there's more to it that God wouldn't allow something in there that's not right. So it's kind of, you write it, I'll make sure there are no errors. Kind of proofreading in, there, in a sense. I think that's closer. Yes. I think that the inspiration guarantees that the final product is what God wanted written. Inspiration does not deal with the methods God uses to get the final product the way he wants it. Now, here's what I would think might have happened. Though we, don't, we just don't know the details of how God does it. But at least this is one way to look at it. God's in control of anything he wants to be in control of. Could God have seen to it that Luke researched the right sources and that he thought of it in the right way to write what he wanted? Could God have shaped Paul's experiences and his life to where what he wrote was what God wanted written? I believe that the bottom line is exactly from God. This is exactly what God wanted written. It's trustworthy and authoritative but that it was not mechanically inspired. It was not dictated. And you think about how similar this is to like Jesus. Was Jesus authentically human? Yeah. And that sometimes troubles people. So he really wasn't the son of God then. Well, he was both. He could be authentically human and authentically divine at the same time. There are some characteristics of Jesus that are not true of God in heaven. There are some characteristics of Jesus that aren't true of man on the earth. But I think the Bible presents him as the perfect blend of man and God. So he really had human temptations, human feelings, and so forth. But he was preserved from sin and error 
he was totally God as well. I think the written word is also both totally human and totally divine, preserved from all error and sin and so forth by God's superintendence, but it's an authentically human document. Now, obviously, I mean, that... I'm saying something that we'd have to investigate at length and people have written volumes about, but I, that's the way I think of this. I, I do believe we need to see this as God's book. But but Luke researched it, and he wrote based upon his research. Thoughts and comments about that? Well, and just the kind of book this is, too. It's it's not necessarily as much of a book where, he's in, where Luke is giving some kind of... Ins- it's, I mean, not purely, but basically trying to record historical events. So the inspiration could simply come from the historical events that were happening and that he recorded, as opposed to, like, Paul's writings, which were more of an instructional kind of nature. The thing that we need in this is since Jesus' life and teachings are normative, then we need him to have written accurate things about what Jesus did and taught. Right. But you're right. Luke, this is not Luke telling us commands, but he is recording what Jesus told. You might think about this as a little bit of a problem, too. Was Luke an apostle? He was not. So I thought the Bible had to be written by apostles, or at least the New Testament. I never thought he traveled. Didn't he travel with Paul? He did travel with Paul. Yeah. But traveling got some influence from Does traveling with Paul mean you're gonna get everything right? No. So so what what was Luke if he wasn't an apostle? A disciple. A Christian. I think it was more than that. A prophet. Yeah, that's what I would say. Is that really it's not true that the Bible or the New Testament was only written by apostles. But I would say only written by apostles and prophets, which means he received the message and the supernatural you know, uh, 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 guidance of God in writing. In fact, a large part of the New Testament was not written by apostles. Right? Luke and Acts, which is a pretty good volume. How about Mark? How about James and Jude? You know, you've got several books that were not written by apostles, but I would argue they were prophets. And you've got passages like Ephesians 2.20 were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the revelation coming through the apostles and prophets in Ephesians 3.5 and so forth. So, so what about these other writings that you referenced? <coughs> yes. Um, they could have been historically accurate as well. They may have been. Yes. And in fact, it's not out of the question that one or two of them could have been like Matthew or Mark. <laughs> he might have had reference to one of those or both. So I don't think he tells us whether they were absolutely accurate or not. I don't think he's passing judgment on that. I think he's just putting his book in that line of works. Without, I, I, I suspect you had you know some good, good works and some bad works in that. But he's not really evaluating that. He is, though, suggesting that this book is trustworthy history. That, that he is, he carefully researched. And if you took out, if somebody didn't believe in God, you know, at least Luke is claiming that this book is historically researched and written carefully. Now, if he'd have been a forger, what should he, what would you have expected him to have said 
about his relationship to this. I was the apostle that was with Jesus from the beginning to the end, and Absolutely. I saw it all myself. Or you the Spirit came upon me and caused me to write this. But yeah, but I would think you'd find the book, you know, more powerful if he said, I was there and witnessed all of it. He isn't trying to say that at all. He's clearly not an eyewitness. There are others who were. He was not. And so, that's interesting. I mean, he's very accurate in that, and not trying to uh, assert something beyond what was true. Um, A couple other things that I want to suggest about this preface. This idea of you can know the exact truth. You know, there is an exact truth. You know, we've kind of sacrificed that in our day. But there is an exact truth that we can know by studying the facts that are set forth in the gospel. You know, postmodernism says there's only relative truth, but that's just not true. And uh, he's, he's investigated and, and researched the facts. Um, so, you know, I think all of this should make us really eager to study Luke. You know, he's complete, he's accurate, he's thorough in investigation, he's organized what he's written. It ought to whet our appetite to know that Luke went to all those pains to try to see to it that this was a really well-researched, well-written work so that we can know the exact truth about the things about Jesus. So I think this uh, stimulates our desire to know what Luke said. Thoughts and comments? I have never thought that the New Testament had to be written by apostles. Well, are, good. are there people who can I think in our just naivety sometimes we're assuming that. Okay. Because we've given a big role to the apostles, which they have. So I, I kind of disconcerted me years ago when I realized hey, he wasn't an apostle. How did he get to write this? Oh, okay. Maybe I was the only one. <laughs> Do we have a good amount of historical evidence for when this was written? in the scheme of the four Gospels. I've heard some people say Mark was written first, some people say Matthew was written first, but I guess I've never heard Luke. I think most of them say Luke was written after Matthew and Mark. I don't think we had a lot to go on. John seems to probably have been read last. Yeah. But as far as the order between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I mean, the thing people do is really complicated. I mean, it's typical for people to say that Luke was written based upon Mark and Q. Right. <laughs> and Q is a document no one's ever seen. <laughs> we theorize that accounts for some of the non-Markan material in Luke. I think all of that is a bunch of hogwash as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there's even concordances to Q and all this kind of stuff. When we have no idea really if there was ever a cue or not, or if you know we, yeah, I was so I don't know. I think I think sometimes we're just going beyond what we have a way to know. Yeah. Like the letter Q. Like the letter Q. Yeah, yeah. you know how about Q. It's literally just called Q. It's it's Q. Yeah, I mean that's big and gospels, you know, research. I don't know what you call that, but you know the. The, Gospelology? The, the modern scholars would, would, I mean, they talk about Q constantly. Q being, Q being the hypothetical source text for the Synoptic Gospels. It's a source text, especially for Luke, along with Mark, in their view. Yeah. And why would we need that? 
Well, you've got to figure out where Luke got his material. So he got some of it from Mark, and that's why he's so close to Mark and some of that. And then he got some of it from Q. And where did Q get it? I don't know. <laughs> it's just... It and why don't we have like the gospel the evolution argument? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> where did it come from? Well, probably another universe. That's what it is. This all probably came because somebody needed a new idea for a doctor's thesis. <laughs> for those years. Oh, man. I'd like to read that one. <laughs> but, but, yeah, I mean, you don't realize how much garbage is written about, you know, the Bible. <laughs> There's a bunch of garbage, and that's a really—I mean, that's that's the standard thought, I think. And, you know, most stuff. I'm not talking about really conservative stuff, but even moderately conservative stuff talks about you. So, anyhow, I won't talk about you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts or comments to verse four? Mm-hmm. All right. So the announcement to Zechariah, uh, five to seven. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Okay, so this is an exciting time. Great preparations were uh, beginning to be enacted. There were plans that had been laid in the eternal past that are about to swing into action (coughs) and the angel Gabriel a few months before the sunrise is sent to tell a priest and his wife that they're about to have a child and the priest refuses to believe him (laughs) so that's kind of funny but he, he sets this in a specific historical context in the days of Herod king of Judea what do you know about Herod king of Judea he wasn't a king. He wasn't a king. He wasn't Herod. <laughs> but he, he was, was not Jewish. He was not a little exactly Jewish, Jewish, but more Edom, Edomite. Edomite, Edumian is what we call Edomites in the New Testament. Were there more than one? Oh, yeah. There this were a bunch Herod. of them. This is Herod the Great. <coughs> this is Herod the Great. Who's who's the the granddaddy of them all, so to speak. That's right. That's my line. Yeah. Herod and Tip and Tippa. Herod Antipas. Antipas. There a, he had like he had like four or five sons, and he killed three or four of them he because like he was sons, yeah. he was so jealous and paranoid about them. He was quite a case. Yeah, he got in on the right side of a battle between uh, Octavian and Mark Antony, and that kind of led him to be in the favor of Octavian, that is Augustus, who gave him right. the kingship of this region. And yeah, there's tons of people in the Herod family mentioned in the New Testament. I mean, this Herod, his son Herod, the Antipas that killed John the Baptist, his grandson by a different son, Herod in Acts 12 that beheaded James and was eaten by worms and died. Three of his children include Drusilla, who's Mrs. Felix, Agrippa, and Bernice. And there's probably four or five at least other Herods mentioned by name in the Testament. So that family was really important in Judean politics. Uh, he reigned from 37 to 4 BC when he died. So that tells you something about when Jesus was born. He was not born in 0 BC. Because Herod killed the babies around Bethlehem after oh. Jesus was born and Herod died in 4 BC. Mm-hmm. So it's rather remarkable, but Jesus died, or Jesus was born before he was born. Yeah. Did somebody mess up the calendar? They did. Because the calendar was established in like the 600s, and they got it off a little. We don't know exactly when Jesus was born. Most people would say 5 to 7 B.C. 
something like that. So it wasn't long before Herod died because other things don't work out if we put it a long time before Herod died. But you know, we're pretty sure Herod died before we see that's pretty established historical fact. So um, you know, and uh, let's see, it's interesting. He's King Herod, but his kingdom had an end. In one thirty-three, Jesus' kingdom will have no end. It's interesting that. Gabriel is coming to break the Lord's silence. He hasn't spoken anything in now 400 years. And this is the first sign of the Lord coming and speaking to people in, the, in this period of time. So this is exciting. Um, and and this, this starts in the temple. And, and if you look at the end of Luke, it ends in the temple too. Um, and and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, well, let's talk about it here. You've got this priest Zechariah of the division of Abijah. What does it mean of the division of Abijah? When David was, David and Solomon were organizing the temple worship, they divided the family of Aaron, Levi, into 24 divisions, including that of Abijah. Yeah. Things were kind of redivided in the post exile period, but it continued the 24 divisions. And so each division would serve in the temple for two weeks, and then they all served on feast weeks. But uh, but they would they would be there for two weeks, and and so this was one of Zacharias's weeks in the in the division of Abijah, um, and and one priest would be chosen by lot each morning and each evening to enter the holy place to burn incense. Now, once they did it, they weren't eligible again. So this, that we're going to read about Zacharias, would have been the only time that he would have ever been in the holy place. It would be the closest he ever would get in his life to the presence of God. He was just a veil away from him. That's really exciting. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But Zacharias and Elizabeth were both righteous men, and they were both uh, priestly descent. <laughs> righteous, people. Yeah. righteous people? Men in the generic sense. <laughs> righteous in the sight of God, notice, not just righteous before men. Um, but they were they were truly righteous. Uh eighteen nine we'll talk about people who are righteous before men. Um, but they were childless. So the fact that they were childless clearly was not due to some sin on their part from what he's uh uh, clarifying here. Uh, so, comments or questions through verse 7. That wasn't a requirement of the law, the whole thing about, like, you choose them by law and you can only go one time. And no, that, was that is their custom. That's yeah. what they did. Okay. Because there were so many priests. Uh, oh. Because what? There were so many priests. Okay. It wouldn't be fair to go twice when somebody else hadn't ever been able to. Okay, sure. Yeah. But no, that's that's strictly their custom. But, like, by law, it just had to be a priest. One of the things that's interesting is you have in the days of Herod were these two people who were both righteous. And the one word you cannot use to describe Herod was righteous. I mean in this in this time of all of the evil things that were going on, you still have these these two righteous people, you know, they're righteous on multiple levels according to verse six and it's just kind of an interesting contrast that that's what's brought up. Mm-hmm. Okay, good point. So, anything else? 8 to 10. 
what was the what was the role of the high priest? The high priest had the special role of entering the Holy of Holies once a year and burning the, uh, you know, bringing the, the blood sacrifice. So this wasn't that? No, no. This would have been a daily thing. Every day they okay. went in and saw They were just going to holy place. They did that every day. They did that twice a day. Yeah. Morning and evening, they would go in and offer incense. Morning and evening sacrifice, yes. I don't think so. But, the, but I could was the incense part of the sacrifice, wasn't it? No, no. But the incense was to be kept burning, you know, to please the Lord. But I don't know if there was a morning and evening statement in the law about coming in and offering incense or not. I'm not sure. But no, so Zacharias was not a high priest. He wouldn't actually go into the Holy of Holies. But think about, I mean, for him as a priest, the day he got to go in there and burn incense, the incense altar was right in front of that veil. So he's right there. I mean, if you just took away the veil, you know. <laughs> and I mean, the veil was the veil was transparent enough to let the smell of the incense, you know, pass through. And he couldn't have seen through it. But it's like, wow, you're really close to the presence of God. I would think that would have been quite a exhilarating and at the same time almost traumatic experience. I mean... You know, the people would worry about the priest if he, he was detained in there for any length of time for fear that the Lord had struck him dead or something. I thought that other priests could go into the holy place for other things, like to set out the showbread and so Somebody like would go in and do that, that's true. Lamp. So, like, right. I mean, wouldn't they theoretically, they're in the same place? I mean, they might not be at the altar of incense, but... Right, but even that would not happen often. You'd replace the bread once a week, okay. and you would go in and trim the lamp. You know, on a daily basis or twice daily basis okay. or whatever. Well, then but, you draw lots for the lamp trimmers and get everybody in multiple times. Yeah, I, do, I am not sure how that worked. I don't okay. know. Yeah. But still, you think about how many priests there were. And, and offering the incense was closer to the presence of the Lord than anywhere else. So this was still a very special thing, even if maybe he had been able to go in and, you know, help with the lamps at some other point or whatever. It wasn't like the priests are going in all the time. Exodus 30, um, referring to the altar of incense, uh, verse 6, You shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Very good, thank you. No strange incense... Don't get drunk. Don't put <coughs> don't put wine on it or meals. And Aaron goes in once a year. Very good. Yeah, uh, that's helpful. So maybe they trim the lamps when they burn the incense. I don't know that that was the case in the first century. That would make it seem like it was there in Exodus thirty. Very good. There's a good reason to be reading those details in Exodus eight to ten. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay. So he's in the uh, the temple burning the incense, and at the same time the people are outside praying. Now, incense is almost a... um, symbol of prayer in the Bible. 
Uh, you see that a couple of times in Revelation, Revelation 5, 8, and Revelation 8, verses 3 and 4. You also see that in a passage like Psalm 141, verse 2, May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. So it would be appropriate for the priest to be offering the incense, the people outside to be praying. Um, and notice that the which priest went in was chosen by Lot, Remember who controls the uh, falling of the lot. You know, the lot is cast into the lap, lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord in Proverbs 16.33. So God designed this so that Zacharias was in there in the temple at the time God wanted Gabriel to appear to him. Thoughts and comments? One of the interesting customs that they had was that they would tie a rope around the priest's foot and there were bells on this rope and so as he went in you could hear him jingling as he went and he trimmed the lamps and he put the incense and he burned that and everything and if the bells stopped and stayed stopped you knew that he'd been struck dead so you could pull him out by the rope right. and they would they would that was one of the <coughs> traditions that they came up with so. correct Mm-hmm. So other people couldn't go into the holy place, so you could have just gone in and got him out. Yeah, but if God's just struck him dead, you may not want to be going and facing. Okay, okay. I mean, I wouldn't. I <laughs> mm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's more awe associated with being inside the t- temple than we might think about. Okay. I mean, only a priest could go in. Certainly, no common person would go in, and a priest wouldn't go in just to you know pass the time of day. I mean, they go in with a purpose. And you come out. And the tradition was, I mean, they go in off of the incense and they get right back out. You don't want to delay in the temple because one false move. You know, you're in the God's house. You know, so they had a sense of awe about it, at least in the first century. Okay, so like people like um, when Josiah was cleaning out the temple or like when Samuel was living in the temple, we're not in, we're not picturing like in the holy place we're picturing like in the surrounding in the temple complex yes okay the tabernacle complex yes I think that's the case no I don't think Samuel was sleeping inside the sanctuary sure sure okay but we we, we, that is confusing because you would read about people in the temple doing this and that in the temple and temple and temple but they weren't in the sanctuary I mean in the New Testament the temple was a, a large enclosure of all kinds of places and rooms and courtyards and one thing and another because really, an ordinary worshiper wouldn't even go into the courtyard. He'd present the animal at the entrance of the courtyard. He wouldn't actually go into the courtyard. And this would have been the temple that Herod built. Right. Mm-hmm. What was building? Mm-hmm. Took twenty some years or something. Okay, eleven and twelve. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. Okay. Can you imagine that? You know, you're already, you know, kind of uh, on edge and, and, and adrenaline flowing what you're doing. And suddenly this angel pops up right to the right of the altar, which would be the favored position. I'm not exactly sure which side we are to the right of the altar. Not sure if we're talking about as Zachariah looked at it or looking out at Zachariah. So, 
not sure. But either way, the idea is it would be the favored position. And of course, how does Zachariah feel immediately? Troubled and fearful. Like scared half to death? You know, not only because somebody just popped in there, but that is the (laughs) standard reaction to being in the presence of even an angel. An angel's been close enough to God that, wow, there's a fear factor in that. Uh, that it's, you know, angels kind of reflect the glory of God because they've been in God's presence, and so that's more than sinners can actually bear. And, uh, you know, it makes a person feel very unworthy, very inadequate if they're a righteous person like Zacharias. Thoughts and comments? Well, it's like if you're in a haunted house, too, like any sound or movement makes you, like, heighten your senses. As opposed to just here, if I heard something like upstairs or something, I'd be like, oh, that probably isn't anything. But if you know that you're in the presence of the Lord, then like anything that happens is going to have like, an effect on you. Absolutely. <laughs> you know nobody else is in there with you, right? <laughs> <laughs> you thought they weren't. <laughs> first thought was probably like, guys, this ain't funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's enough of the pranks. <laughs> it would be, it would be spooky. Alright, 13 to 17. But the angel said to him, Do not be, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in this sight of the Lord, and shall drink the neither wine or strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn any of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn their hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make petty a people prepared for the Lord. Okay. So the angel addresses Zacharias' fears. Do not be afraid, Zacharias. That would be the customary response that an angel would give in a situation like that. Um, And uh, these are the first words from God in the gospel, and perhaps the first words from God, as we said, since Malachi spoke uh, back in uh, that day. Uh, Do not be afraid, Zacharias. And then he says something interesting. Your petition has been heard. I am not sure what that means. What do we assume he was petitioning? For a child. Well, maybe. But did he he didn't even think he could bear a child at this point. So what's he doing petitioning? Or are we thinking about back in the day when he was petitioning? Years ago. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe this is a delayed response. I think that is one possibility. It's a little hard for me to think he was praying right then for his son, since he seems shocked to think that a son could be given to him. But maybe it's prayers they had before. Is there another option? Just the prayers of... Like the prayers of the people for the Messiah to come. That kind of a... I mean, that... I'm trying to think of what, like, the standard prayer would be when you come in to offer the incense. And... That yeah, I don't know if there would have been a standard <laughs> prayer for that, but yes, I wonder if it's his prayers for the Messiah to come, especially when you consider it like Simeon, Anna, Joseph of Arimathea in Luke's Gospel were 
looking for the redemption of Jerusalem, looking for the consolation of Israel, awaiting the kingdom of God. There seems to have been a, an expectation, which you would expect from the Old Testament, that the Messiah would come. Was he praying about that? You know, I, I, I don't know the answer. I think either of those are possibilities. Uh, we're not really told, so... Depending on how you look at it. Um, he, he says a number of things about the importance of John. Um, it's going to give Zacharias you know, joy and gladness. And not just him. Many will rejoice at his birth. Joy is a dominant feature in these uh, first couple of chapters of, of the gospel because these are joyous events. And before the Lord, he's going to be great. Uh, his career is going to be consecrated to the Lord. No wine or liquor. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe no wine or liquor like a priest would be. They are not to drink or in Nazarite. Uh, he's supposed to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not wine. You know, there, there are several passages where you got have got that contrast kind of not spirits, but the spirit. That's an English thing, but not liquor, but the spirit. In the sense that, you know, he's not going to be under the influence of alcohol. He's going to be under the influence of the spirit. Ephesians five eighteen, don't be drunk, but be filled with the spirit, um, and. You know, it's kind of ironic in Acts 2. They accused him of being drunk, but really they were filled with the Spirit. So you have kind of that typical uh, connection there. Um, and uh, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit while he's yet in his mother's womb. By the way, um, that means that John was always full of the Holy Spirit from the time he was conceived, perhaps. Uh, but he did no miracle. John 10.41 being filled with the Spirit does not necessarily mean you can do miracles, which is a false assumption some religious groups make. Um, and his role was to go before him in the Spirit and power of Elijah. Um, you know, you think about, um, well, I, I should have said verse 16 first, he's going to turn people back to God. He's going to bring them back to the Lord, and then he's going to go be as the forerunner before him. You know, what happens when... Uh, a great person makes an appearance. Almost always somebody goes before them, introduces them, at least. You've at least got that. I mean, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States, or, you know, even all rise when the judge comes in. You know, that, I mean, you know, so he's, he's making the preparation, but really what he's doing is he's preparing the people, the people's hearts and the people's attitudes for the coming of the Lord. Now, the expectation I think we'd have from Isaiah and Malachi is that this is the coming of God. You know, now, it is, but in the person of Jesus. But I'm not sure you would have necessarily known that from Isaiah and Malachi. The idea is, you know, he's uh, going before him, the Lord himself, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, that goes back to the last two verses of Malachi that Elijah was coming as the forerunner. But he's not the literal, physical Elijah. He said he was not Elijah in John 1. But Jesus said he was Elijah in several passages in the sense that he was the Elijah of Malachi 4. He was the another Elijah that was coming with the same attitudes and a lot of parallels. And certainly the Elijah who came into the wilderness, came into the darkness, Uh-oh. speaking out and announcing God and his kingdom and his will and rule. So he was an Elijah in that sense. Turning the disobedient back to the attitude of the righteous, 
and, and making the people prepared for the Lord. He's trying to get people to turn back to God, get them ready for the coming of the Lord in the person of Jesus. So that's a lot to lay on Zacharias, don't you think? Wow. You know, that he's going to have a son that's going to be all this and do all that, and whoa, he's an old man and his wife's barren. Thoughts and comments? Uh, All right, 18 to 20. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And 20. And 20. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. So Zacharias hears this wonderful message, and what's he say? We're too old. How do I know? (laughs) (laughs) At least that's what we tell the two and three girls. (laughs) You know, (laughs) isn't it funny that he says to the angel, I am an old man and my wife has advanced in years, as if the angel maybe had forgotten that fact? (laughs) You know, uh, by the way, I need to inform you, I'm, I'm older than I look, you know. <laughs> you wonder. Uh, but but they're really old. I mean, I gather they're old, <laughs> you know, and, and not going to, not, not good prospects, not good candidates for bearing a child. Uh, but he's looking at things from a human's perspective. He's got his biology right, not his theology right. You know, he's not thinking about the Lord. And Gabriel says, listen, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. You know, he's kind of given his name, rank, and serial number. You don't question me on that. Uh, and uh, I've been sent to speak to you. I mean, Gabriel didn't take this mission on himself. God sent him just to tell him that. And so uh, he wants to know how he could know this for certain. You know, there are some things not to ask for. God said, okay, you want to know for certain? I'll be glad to oblige. You won't be able to speak until these things take place. Now, think about poor Zacharias. He has just heard the greatest news that anybody's heard in four centuries, and he can't tell anybody. You know, wow. And imagine trying to play charades with Gabriel's prophecy. You know, that would not be an easy thing to explain. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you got the idea, but I'm not sure it's going to work. Uh, so, that that's just kind of funny. I mean, you know, I, he got kind of what he deserved. I mean, okay, he's got the sign now. Now he knows. He can't talk. Thoughts and comments? Like, are we assuming that, like, he was misbehaving here? Like... I don't know if it's misbehaving, but misbelieving. He didn't trust the angel. I mean, he should have believed him. Gabriel tells you you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. I don't care what you are. I mean, I guess, assuming that, like, somebody tells me they saw the angel, I would automatically say, He saw the angel. <laughs> That's the difference. But nobody had for 400 years, so in his defense, this yeah, is a little I mean, bit unusual. Yeah. But I don't think the question is, he thinks, are you really an angel? (laughs) I think he assumes this is from God. 
Okay. You know, I mean, not that we need to be overly hard on Zacharias. I mean, God chose Zacharias. He's a righteous man. It's not like he's a terrible person. But he should have trusted this. I think the Lord is rebuking him. Okay. You know, it's like, we are sometimes. Oh, I can't, I, 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 there's just no way. You know, God can't do this. Wait a minute. How can God not do this? God can do anything he chooses. Okay. You know, so. And, yeah. and it's not the same as when Gideon was saying... <clears throat> Can I have a sign, please? You know, kind of. There's, there seems to be a difference of attitude. Yes, I agree. And he's saying this can't be. I'm too old. Yeah, yeah. It's different from what Mary's going to say. She's going to ask how this could happen, but not like this can't happen. But like, how is this going to happen? I am a virgin. You know, she believes it, but she doesn't understand the mechanism, and she's blessed with more information. 21 and 25. Maybe there's more than we, like, exact, maybe there's tone and heart, like, that we're not exactly getting from his words. Sure, yeah. I mean, some of what we think about it is based upon how Gabriel responded. 21 to 25. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So the people are wondering why Zacharias is delayed. I suspect they're wondering if he's been killed. He comes out and he can't talk. It would be typical in the first century for the priest to pronounce a priestly blessing on the hearers. He can't do that. He can't speak. Clearly something's happened. Strange things are starting to occur. (coughs) And, uh, you know, so when he finishes that time period that uh, the course of Abijah spends in Jerusalem, he goes back home. Elizabeth became pregnant. She secludes herself for several months. Maybe she doesn't feel like she ought to be the one to announce this. Maybe she just needs to uh, let her pregnancy itself be the announcement of uh, what's happened. Um, thoughts and comments? Okay. Um, start uh, at least this next section. 26 to 26 to uh, 30. 30. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Okay. So we're in the sixth month, I think, of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Gabriel has another mission. To go to uh, Nazareth of Galilee to this virgin that's engaged. This is the greatest announcement the world's ever known, pretty much. Uh, at least up to this point. And it's, it's an announcement made to this young virgin woman in the city of Nazareth, of all places. You remember that uh, 
Nathaniel was not overly impressed with the idea of a Messiah coming from Nazareth. But, I mean, Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament, not mentioned in Josephus, not mentioned in any of the rabbinic literature, in the Mishnah, the Talmud. Nazareth was really not mentioned. It was a very um, minor, minor blip on the screen of, uh, you know, Galilean uh, geography. And, and what a contrast. Gabriel had previously been sent where? Jerusalem, the temple. To the temple in Jerusalem. Now he's sent out to this backwoods hick town, you know, of Nazareth, to this, uh, not a priest, but some evidently pretty much peasant teenager probably. You know, that's uh, probably, you know, you wouldn't expect this to be a very great announcement. <laughs> Uh, I don't wonder if we're saying something right or wrong here. So, uh, you know, and I mean, doesn't this kind of match Jesus' ministry? Simple, you know, not not elite uh, among Judean society. Uh, I just think that it's, it's interesting. And uh, again, he was sent. This is God's mission for him. So Mary is in a situation, she's betrothed to a man, but she is not, she is still a virgin. Betrothal was like a binding engagement. So, this is weird. This virgin's going to have a son, that's what we're going to find out. I mean, that really does violate biology. I mean, there's just no way. Why would God do something so strange in bringing Jesus into the world? Well, there was a prophecy about it in Isaiah. Yes. But the prophecy was probably because this was going to happen. This doesn't happen because he prophesied. <laughs> the prophecy came first. Came first the end. <laughs> well, I mean, so he, he he obviously had a biological mother, but didn't have a biological father in that life. Why would that be true? Why would God do it that way? That's just so strange for us. Because the Father is God. So it's because of who Jesus is. Jesus' uniqueness practically requires some unique birth. I mean, when you think about Jesus being God in human form, we'd have been shocked if he'd have been the product of Mary and Joseph, wouldn't we? I mean, so, I mean, we don't, this is, there's no details given in a biological sense of how this happened, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, whatever all that meant or happened, we don't know, and I don't know that anybody knows, but it enabled God to be born as a human. You know, this is a totally, you know, unique experience, I guess that's redundant, but it's a unique experience. And uh, there's such an amazing thing happening to Mary. And notice he says to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, favored one means what? What would you... What does that say about Mary? She's like the special one, uh, uh, in a sense. Because? Of what was going to happen. And what was going to happen was because... But yes, God is favoring her. This is not saying that she is a person who favors people. 
she is given God's grace. She's not the, the she's not the one that dispenses the grace. You know, the Catholic Church would emphasize, oh, she's the favored one, as if you know somehow or other she's got special powers. But she is given God's favor. That's the point. She has been blessed by God. She's the daughter of grace, not the mother of grace. Um, and, and we'll see that all throughout this. She has a very blessed role, but not because of who she is, but because of God's grace to her. And she's perplexed. I mean, this is like, this is pretty random too. You know, suddenly Gabriel comes and says, Greetings favored when the Lord is with you. And she's pretty troubled. And the angel says, do not be afraid, Mary. That's what you say if you're an angel and you appear to some human being. Because they're <laughs> going to be afraid, so you got to, you know, comfort them. For you've found favor with God. Again, it's the idea, God is blessing you. Uh, so, you know, neither Mary or Zacharias were accustomed to, uh, you know, visions like that. This, you know, they're not, they don't have voices in their head all the time or anything like that. This is a shocking thing. And an amazing thing that God would do. Thoughts and comments on this? Well, the Catholics use this verse to try to say that. Mm-hmm. Among others, yeah. Well, oh, and then they, they also add that part after that verse there that some texts admit, blessed are, are you among. Well, and, then, and they said that like qualifies, I guess, the, the previous part saying <laughs> you're the favored one among the people, I guess. Yeah, Hail Mary, full Hail of Mary, grace, full of grace. Blessed, blessed art thou, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and part of that comes but from verse 42. Mm-hmm, yes. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Right, so. right. Yeah, it's a composite. But you know that's one of the prayers in the room, right? I'm right about yeah. that, right? It's the Hail, Hail Mary. Hail Mary, yeah. <laughs> the Hail Mary, the Our Father, and what's the other one? Isn't there another one? I think it's just the, it just the, the Pedernoster and the Hail Mary, the Our okay, Father. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. okay. They're clearly misreading that. Yeah, exactly. They are. She is greatly blessed, greatly favored. God's grace. What a what a wonderful blessing to be able to be, to be willing to, to be chosen for this role by God. But it's not that she's doing this for herself. It's not that she has some special blessing to dispense. She is the recipient. Well, and also, I feel like if a huge part of your religion is one single verse in the Bible, that's like, that <laughs> could be a concern. If this is like nowhere else that it talks even remotely. There are some other verses they try to, you know, promote the Mary... You know, focus with, but uh, none, none saying what they say. They say, okay. Uh, so I'm assuming this is probably a good place to stop, and we can just uh, pick up here next week at uh, about verse 31. <coughs> good is that? So I enjoyed.